So this uh, evening, I would like to look at the third path of the Noble Eightfold Path, and that is appropriate speech. And personally, I bring in today because I feel it is connected with listening. It is connected with uh, communication. And so first, I'd like to read two quotes about what the Buddha says about right speech. And so, what is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is right speech. So basically, he's saying, if we lie, if we slander, if we speak harshly, if we speak frivolously. So that's what he does not recommend. He does not think it's appropriate. But I think there is a, a, another quote where he, he kind of refine a little what he means. That it is not just... Because often we think of this thing as, you know, rule and regulation. I must never tell a lie. I must never do this. But in the second quote, the Buddha is very clear that he, he suggests this appropriate speech because it is going to help in terms of communication, in terms of harmony between people. And personally, I feel this one, this quote, I found very essential, very uh, useful. So he says, he does not, he or she does not, in full awareness, speak falsehood for his or own ends or for another hand or for some petty world end. So I think here there is two different things. He, does not, he or she doesn't speak in full awareness. So in a way he's saying this is what we're cultivating, that by cultivating awareness, by cultivating mindfulness, then it will be more likely that we will be able to cultivate, to develop, to manifest appropriate speech. And then, in terms of this not speaking falsehood, it shows that, in a way, you don't lie in your own interest or for some another person's interest or for some petty interest. So it's kind of, to me, what is interesting is often the Buddha looks at different aspects of the situation. He is not just kind of putting a rule and regulation, but he said, with awareness, look, if you lie, why do you do it? I mean, what is behind it? Do you, it for your, do, you do it for your own benefit, for somebody else's benefit, or for just kind of the, the, the sake of it? I mean, once... I was so surprised. I never seen that before. When I was a nun in Korea, I met this young man. And as I was a translator, I was just uh, translating for the guest. And so I had to kind of help him out, take care of him a little for two days. And when he left, I realized that everything he said to me had been a lie. And I kind of could not understand why would he do this? You know, like, he did not need to lie to me. And then I thought, it sounded to me like it was just a habit. 
that he was just, he could not help himself. He had to kind of make this kind of fairy story. And then I, I kind of was kind of like struck. Oh, he doesn't do it because, I mean, he wouldn't have not got any special benefit for me by doing it just for the sake of it. Because he could not, that's what he did. He just lied about anything. It was very strange. You felt you were in a kind of separate universe. <laughs> then, abandoning malicious speech, he or she abstains from malicious speech. He or she doesn't repeat elsewhere what he or she has heard here in order to divide those people from this. Nor does he or she repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. So he kind of, you know, he looks at if you say it to this one, then if you say it to that one. And he's kind of, in a way, really looking at when you kind of uh, notice when you're talking about somebody else to somebody else. Is it with a compassionate intention? Or do you have a certain intention to get people on your side? Often that's what I find. If there is any conflict, then you generally have two sides. And then each side tries to get you on board and then tell you something so that you don't like those. And then the other one do the same. And then you're in the middle and you feel... You know, how can I kind of, you know, move things a little differently? But to see, what do we do when we say something nasty about somebody else? When that person is not there, what is our intention? And I think it's kind of the Buddha is saying, look, what do you do? And what will be the consequences of that speaking? And that's what he says. Are you going to be someone who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendship, who enjoys concord, who rejoices in concord, who delights in concord, a speaker of words that promote concord? And then here, I think in this sentence, we can really see that the Buddha put great emphasis on how can people communicate in a positive way. And what does it mean as a group to help each other? Once I was uh, teaching a, a, a work retreat, a kind of like in the daytime. And so the people would come before they work, then they would go to their job, then they would come back in the evening and we would talk about it. And one point I made uh, before they left is, when in your work, in your place of work, can you try to look at speech? Can you look at appropriate speaking? Are you going to help the atmosphere, the harmony in the group or not? And somebody, when she came back, she said, generally, I hate going to work because we're all sitting, doing because they were doing pottery, and we all go about doing nasty gossip, which is really not very nice. And so that day, she decided to do something else. And so to the next person, said, what do you think? How about if we talk a little more positively about a more positive subject? And the next person said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's try it. Everybody did it. And then it was much easier. It was such a much nicer, kind of more cordial atmosphere. And then it became much more creative. 
So I think, in, in a way, sometimes we think, oh, the atmosphere is so bad. But do we do something? Do we kind of help the atmosphere in a kind of beneficial way or not? Then, abandoning harsh speech, he abstained from harsh speech. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, are courteous, desired by many, and agreeable to many. And this is kind of, in a way, looking at how do we speak. Sometimes, and I think that's where the meditative awareness can really help us, we speak faster than we think. And often we regret it. It's kind of like, you, you say something and you think, ah, I should not have said that. But it's because it's strange, this power of speech, which just kind of goes faster. And as a teacher, I really learned that. Because at the beginning, I was a little more careless with my speech. And then people would come up and say, you said this, I did not like it. You know, even once I had this lady who come to me and said, you know, you've been saying that, you know, you would argue this, you would argue that as a Buddhist. I do not think you should argue. This is not a Buddhist way. So then I thought, okay, I have to find a better English word. And so now I suggest. I do not argue. But it's a simple thing. I mean, I learned from that. Whenever somebody comes to me and said, well, you said this and you said it, you said it like that, I think, hmm, yeah. Can I say it in a different way? Because in a way, when we speak, I think what is important is we're speaking not just in empty space. We're speaking to somebody else. And can we speak in such a way that the person can hear us and that then we can have a dialogue? And then he finishes, abandoning gossip. He abstains from gossip. She speaks at the right time, what is factual and good about the Dharma and the discipline. At the right time, she speaks words worth recording, reasonable, moderate, and beneficial. So gossip, that's a kind of a little difficult kind of topic, you know? Can we like Buddhists too like to gossip. Anybody like to gossip? <laughs> but then to see what is interesting with gossip, is often it's a little kind of a lot of it is hearsay. It's kind of often it's kind of like kind of nearly like urban legend. Often we kind of talk about things and it's very interesting how you can spread. Once we kind of decided, I, I wanted to make an experiment to kind of how would you develop a negative gossip about somebody. And I realized it was so easy. You just had to tell one person, went to another person, and then, then it became this huge thing that even worse than what you started with. And that's when I realized, you know, you have to be very careful. I mean, I did not really do the experiment. It was more like a thought experiment. But I thought, yeah, you know, we, we need to communicate with each other. We need to talk with each other. But can it be appropriate speech, which comes, again, from the previous one, the appropriate thinking, harmlessness, non-ill will, renunciation. And I think with speech, actually, I would see appropriate speech can be, I would say, developed with renunciation. And sometimes to think, do I really need to say this in that way to that person? 
And, and we have to see, why do I want to say this? There is this wonderful story I read about this fellow. He was a teacher. And uh, he, very clever guy, very intelligent, very, he writes, very, very funny. He's extremely funny. And so he was having a, a little kind of domestic with his wife in the car. And she said something, and then he thought of a rejoinder, which was so funny, so good, so quick. He thought, oh, this is such a good one. And then he thought, maybe this is not a good idea. I mean, it's very clever, it's amazing, but I don't think it's going to improve the situation. So he renounced it. He did not say it, and so the, the, then it becomes a little more harmonious. But I think it's interesting to look at renunciation in terms of speaking. Once there is this person, this is kind of a well-known thing among uh, the Vipassana group, there was this person who decided they would not talk about somebody else if that person was not in the room. And that person did that for three months as a practice. I will not speak about somebody else if the person is not in a room. And that decreased the speaking by 60%. <laughs> and the person said it was a very interesting experience. So in a way, to me what is interesting in terms of appropriate speaking is to see that generally... We do appropriate speaking. Most of us have good intention, and most of us will try to be careful most of the time. And so that's why I find what is interesting is what are the conditions which will help me to do appropriate speaking, and what are the conditions that will not. And I think also another thing to look at is our intention, to see that it's not fixed, you see, do not lie. To see it is not kind of like a fixed rule and regulation. Because sometimes you might have to be economical with the truth. Maybe to avoid trouble, maybe not to cause pain to somebody. And a good example is when somebody said, I saw you talk to that person. Did that person talk about me? And what did that person say about me? This, I would say, generally try not to answer it. Because often, either you might misinterpret what the person said or what you will say, which thing you thought was a good idea, they will not think it was so nice. So we have to be very careful when people ask us things like that. What did they say about me? This is very dangerous. So you might, you know, try to remain silent or kind of vague, I would recommend there. <laughs> Or is our intention to take advantage? Is our attention to deceive? I think there is a big difference there. So it's not kind of the, the, the lying per se, but it's kind of looking what is the intention? What is the effect of my lying? Am I misleading the person? And then after that you will have kind of you know difficult uh, result. Or you have slender. I, that's, that's a big one, in a way, in uh, Buddhism, because that's one of the rules. You should not slander the three jewels. So you should not say any bad things about the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. This is a big no-no. 
But personally, I would say it's not a rule on regulation. Is again, you need to have creative awareness. If I know a certain teacher, a certain although the teacher might have done lots of meditation and things like that, lots of amazing experiences, but seems to have a little kind of blind spot in terms of young blonde lady. <laughs> and if a young blonde lady comes to me and say, you know, should I go and meditate with that guy? I would say, no, 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 no. I would not recommend it. You're better off with that one. If it's kind of, you know, a 50 years old kind of uh, man, I would say, it's okay. Yeah, you can go. It's fine. <laughs> so you see, again, we have to see. Sometimes you want to prevent. You want to, in a way, to incite the person to be careful. Or in a way, am I slandering somebody to really demean the person and to really feel that I am so much better than that person? What is behind it? Am, am I doing it in a way out of compassion? Am I doing it out of kind of, you know, arrogance? Or you have harsh, harsh language. Does it mean that we have to speak softly all the time? So it's so nice. Well, I'm not so sure. I mean, especially parents. I mean, parents, I think, you know, have a hard time because they have to, you know, you see the kid kind of three years old going toward the street and you, oh, dear, please don't go. I mean, that generally won't have much effect. Generally, you have to kind of, you know, shout, stop, you know, and Possibly it might have some effect on the kid. So, you know, I think we have to be careful what we mean. Or do I kind of use a language which is really attacking, which is really aggressive, which is really bullying the other person so that, in a way, they feel threatened. They feel, oh, you know, in a way, people start to fear when you're going to speak because there is this kind of harsh energy. Once I had this experience, I mean, it rarely happened that people speak to me harshly. Many years ago, uh, I had to work with somebody, and that person decided that day, I am not going to work with you. No way am I going to come to an interview with you. And then for 30 minutes, he attacked me. And it was quite nasty. And then I was kind of there, listening to him, thinking, hmm, this has nothing to do with me. But yeah, it's not very pleasant, is it? <laughs> you know, so I kind of let him do it because he, uh, he had to express it, to say it. And at the end, I said, well, you know, I don't agree, but you don't want to see me. This is fine. And later he apologized and I saw me and things like that. But I mean, it did not affect me. But that fellow living in community, I realized, wait a minute. If he does that to other people, then it must be very painful. So I got him with another teacher. We got him and said, wait a minute. You can't do this in that way. You cannot bully people in that way. So I think in a way to see what, what happened, what is behind the harsh language. And then there is um, gossip. There is a tricky of gossip. Personally, I think a little gossip is a good one. You know, Because I used to have a friend. Oh, he was it was wonderful in one level, but terrible at another one. You could not have an ordinary conversation with him. He always wanting to talk about Dharma, about the truth, about the ethics, all the time, everywhere. 
you could not have a kind of little conversation. It was about consciousness. And, you know, and I'm, I mean, I enjoy talking about consciousness, but you know, not 24 hours a day. So I feel we need a little you know, social interaction, chit-chat, just kind of, you know, like you walk along the, the, the road, somebody from the outside world saying hello to you. You say hello, you are in silence here, but, I mean, if they say good day, you're not going to say, oh. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to think, these guys, they're so weird. They say, good day, you smile, and then you pass. You don't worry about it. But in a way, when we gossip, when we kind of chit-chat, I find it interesting. What do we do? Are we just occupying the space? Do we need to talk to somebody in order to feel alive? That, I think, is problematic. Because if there is nobody to talk to, what you feel not alive. And then, as soon as you get somebody who is there, then you can't stop talking. My mother has a friend like this. She talks nonstop. She's amazing. She's really amazing. Never seen somebody talk so much. It's amazing. You feel that she needs to talk to feel alive. And I think it must be so painful when, she, when there is nobody to talk to. It must be like she must feel so lonely. And I think the meditative awareness can help us there to kind of just, and that's why the silence, I think, is also important, to become friendly with ourselves, that we can be with ourselves. We don't need to, have, to talk, to express ourselves, to exist. And then to look a little at the condition. And I would say one of, some of the conditions for inappropriate speech will be often tiredness, stress, busyness. And so in a way to notice that, to see that, hmm, I am stressed. I might have to be a little more careful with my speech because that I'm going to be in such a space that I might speak things a little out of turn. And then I think there the meditative awareness can really help us. Or I think what is important in terms of speech is to be aware of our effect on others. The Buddha is interesting. If you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the, the Sutta on the Four Foundation of Mindfulness, he says to be mindful internally and externally. And I think part of that with speech is to be aware what is the effect of my words on others. How do they receive it? How do they hear it? Sometimes when you travel in a foreign country, you, you don't know the language, so you, say, you still speak your own language. You know, your English, you speak English. They don't understand it, so you repeat it but more loudly. So, you know, maybe they'll get it better. But that is very unlikely they don't know English. And it's the same with a friend. You explain something to a friend, they don't get it or they don't agree. What do you do? You repeat it again more loudly so that you, know, you think they'll get it. Generally not. The, the, I, higher the volume does not help. So in a way to see what is the effect on others. And with that, and this leads me to the exercise we did today of listening. To me, this is a very important practice, that to do listening here and then to bring that listening meditation to our daily life. That, I think, is one of the practices we can do easily. Whenever we talk with someone, how do we listen to that person? And I would generally say that 
when we listen, we do it in three different ways. The first one, we listen and we wait for the person to stop so we can say something which is so much more interesting. So then we do three things. We wait for them to stop. We try to remember what we're going to say, which is so much more interesting. And we listen to them. So that's not very much, just one third. The next one is even more interesting. We listen, we're looking in the right direction. We think about everything but what the person is saying. And then after they speak a few minutes, they turn to us and they say, what do you think? And you have not the faintest idea what they said. But, I mean, you have ears, they work. You have consciousness, it works. And it really shows the difference between being aware and being mindless. This really shows it. Because you were there, physically, everything, but you did not hear it because you were not there, you were not mindful. Then there is a third way, and this you talk, and then you too overreactive, too grasping at what the person said. Oh, no, really, and you kind of kind of proliferating, exaggerating. And to me, this is the art of meditative listening. How do I listen? To really just be there, to really listen totally fully. And then when the person stops, what is interesting is that a lot of the time you will be surprised by what you say. Often it will be more wise, it will be more compassionate, it will be more appropriate than anything you can have prepared. Because at that moment, your whole being is responding to the whole being of that person. And then we can be really creative. And to me, this is something I would really encourage you to do, to cultivate meditative listening and to, in a way, surprise yourself with your creative potential, how you can respond to the person at that moment. Then also with listening, we have something that Stephen might have mentioned briefly, but part of conditionality. With listening, you have contact. You have contact with a word. So today we had contact with sounds. And there is sounds we like, sounds we might not like so much. But what is interesting with words, what is a word? Is just a little sonorous wave. Sun, sadness, it's gone. The word is just a word. It appears and it goes. If you want to look at emptiness anywhere, one place to look at it is in word you hear. Because they really arise and they go. They arise and they go. But this thing, which is so intangible, which is really kind of just this little kind of sonorous wave, we grasp at it. This is what is interesting. We grasp at it and we keep it. And so you sit in meditation, you relatively fine, and then you remember two years ago they said this. How could they say this? It was so painful. And so you kind of, you know, work it up a bit. You know, 
so bad. But I mean, the world was two years ago. It's like me. I am here, and I look at you. I look at you very warmly. You know, I look at you very positively. And I say to you, you are awakened. <gasps> Martin said, I am awakened. I am awakened. I can go and teach and buy a Mercedes and kind of, you know, <laughs> do the thing people do who are awakened. Or I look at you a little, a little seriously, a little dourly. You are stupid. <gasps> she said, I'm stupid. But she's stupid to say I'm stupid. And off you go. You know? But it's just a word. And I think this is what is important with the meditation. To me, what the meditation will help us in terms of listening to the words of other is to help us to cultivate stability and openness. Stability so that we can be really stable within ourselves. And then when we hear the word, to have the choice. Is it about me or is it about them? Because often we think it's about me. But a lot of the time, it's about the person who speaks. And often I feel like it's kind of, we have a choice. Do I want to buy this? Maybe not. Maybe not. So in a way, with the stability to be stable so we can hear it, and with the openness, and that's where later we'll come on with the questioning, to kind of question, is it about me? Do I need to do something about this or not? And so really to con consider, instead of oh, straight away, you hear a word and you grasp at it. Often that's what we do, we stick to it, we identify with it, we proliferate, we exaggerate with it. Instead of just considering, ah, this word has a reason. How can I look at it? How can I creatively respond, creatively engage with it? Then another thing about words is actually the way they influence us. That's interesting. We generally think we are rather independent. I'm, I mean, this is something we all... Uh, taught in school, taught in this modern world that we must be independent, we must be strong, we must know our mind, and we're not getting influenced by anybody. I know my mind. I know what I think. But actually, we are so influenceable. It's just amazing. You are at a dinner table, you are with a friend, for 30 minutes she say nasty thing about a mutual friend who has done nothing to you, I bet you that by the end of it you feel bad about that person too. We can be really influenceable. Just watch TV, you watch a program where they kind of have a discussion and then you have two people who have totally opposite view. So that one says, yes, it's like this, it's like that, and think, hmm, yeah, yeah. Then the other one says opposite, and you think, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can, we're so easily influenced. And I think that's what, again, the meditative awareness can help us to be stable, to see, do I want to believe this? Do I want to proliferate with this? Do I want to exaggerate this? So in a way, not that we don't listen, 
but that we listen with creative awareness. We listen with mindfulness. And then the last one I wanted to mention was, uh, it's interesting to, for us to notice with the meditative awareness that there are certain words that are trigger words, that they're either inner words or they are outer words, that if somebody say it, you see red, or off you go. Recently I had this with a friend, another teacher. He's a wonderful teacher. But the poor thing, he just talked about one thing, you know, something. And that got me. After that, I was... <laughs> I kind of... Me who generally kind of uh, don't create too much discussion. I was there, ready for any moment. If you say it again, I'll get it. Another word, often that can be an inner or outer word, which really we react to, most of us. And very interesting, and it seems to be actually more, I read a survey, uh, a, Western, a Western reaction, which actually seems to come with democracy. So maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. But the effect of it is a little kind of uh, intense, is unfair. This is unfair. I remember kind of, you know, sometime being in the kitchen at home and saying to Stephen, this is unfair. And him saying, is the world a fair place? You know, <laughs> and it doesn't mean that we don't like fairness, that fairness is not a good idea. But I, th I think it's very important to see that there are trigger words which are going to have this power over us which then actually often makes us go into what I would call a very intense mind state when actually we're not ready to look in a way which is more creative, which is more open, which might be more stable. So in a way, for us to see what is our trigger word, how can I be with these words? And so in a way, to look in terms of appropriate speech, in terms of listening, to see in a way that it's kind of a positive cultivation. For me, it's very much about creativity and very much about wisdom and compassion. And I think at that level, to see that one of the aspects of the practice is looking into the characteristics. And you might think the characteristics Oh, yo, yo, they're really negative, you know? Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, pain, no self. And you think, you know, you think I must look at this, you know, all the time. Ooh, this is not fun. <laughs> and at the same time, personally, what I think the point or investigating, of looking deeply into the characteristic, is actually to develop, uncover wisdom and compassion. To me, this is actually the point. Not to find impermanence. I got it. But actually that by us really being in tune with impermanence, then arise compassion. And this I have seen through the practice that when I really, really knew impermanence, and that was when I saw my father died, I saw his last breath. And in that moment, I knew each person's life 
rested upon a single breath. And out of that arose his compassion. I stopped looking at the people through the image, idea, concept I had of them. And instead, I could reach, I could touch their humanness, that their life, too, rested upon a single breath, like my life. And out of that arose compassion. Another aspect of impermanence is change. This is what one forgets, is that impermanence means that things can change. And to me, this is a gift of impermanence, that I am not stuck. That person there is not stuck. I mean, they might not change immediately, but they have the potential to change. So, And because of that, I can sow seeds. And this is what I experienced one with my nephew, who was many years ago in a terrible place. And I was a nun at the time, and I came back to France for a few months. And so I thought, what can I do for this young man? The only thing I can do is teach him breath meditation. I thought, that's simple enough. So I taught him, and he listened to me, he had nothing else to do. So I left it at that. And then many, many years later, he said, oh, you know, recently I had a hard time. And then I remembered your instruction on the breath meditation, and I did it, and it was so helpful. And so in a way, if we know that there is a potential for change, then we're not going to say, this is hopeless, this is helpless, I won't try anything. But we can just try to water the seed of that potential for change. Then you have the next one is dukkha. And I think dukkha doesn't mean that you know everything is suffering and we should suffer more because then it will be better for us. But more to know suffering. Because if we know suffering, we will know two things about it. That it is painful, but more than that, it is isolating. Nobody can feel my headache for me. Nobody can experience my sciatica for me. I mean, you can be uh, empathizing, but you cannot have it for me. So that when we are here, that it be mentally, psychologically, emotionally, physically, we feel isolated in our pain. And when we really know that, we cannot but have compassion for our pain, but also for the other person's pain. And the last one, the not-self. To me, this one is very important. And Again, one has to be careful not to mystify, not to make this not-self, this mystical stuff, like especially the word emptiness, you know. I experience emptiness. If I get no self, I, at the end of the retreat, there will just be a little wisp of smoke on all your cushion. You will all be abiding in kind of some empty... Not at all. I think what is very important to see is that the not-self actually means we are a flow of conditions. And this is to me what meditative meditation is, is actually exploration and discovery of all the conditions that forms us, the inner condition, the outer condition. And this is, as we were talking about, it's inexhaustible. We discover more and more all the time. And then we can see that this flow of condition 
is relatively stable. I mean, tomorrow morning, it's extremely unlikely that I will become a giraffe. That I doubted. But of course, overnight, I could have a heart attack. That's possible. And then I would be quite different. So anyway, to see the fact that there is change and no self and conditionality doesn't mean we change every second. But it means that we are not fixed all the time. And this is why there is life, because there is this conditionality, there is this moving, this changing. And so in a way to see that often what is painful, and I think why often we close our heart, is we think, this is interesting, we think, we have the feeling, there is a little cube here with the name Marty. And on the cube, everything sticks. It's like we kind of Velcro. Everything, chuck, chuck. And then, we can really get stuck. And then we have this self we have to protect from the outer, the outer there. They're going to get me. So we kind of have these walls. You know, we kind of look over there. Oh, you over there? Well, stay over there. You know, I am here, safe, you know, a little higher, even more safe, though I can't see very much. When actually there is no cube, there is no place where things can stick. There is no need to have walls. And to me, this is a thing about the not-self. And the conditionality is to see how, in a way, our existence, our survival depends on everything outside ourselves. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the house we live in, everything comes from the outside for our survival. And if we really see this, then arose arises compassion, this compassion for this shared life, through the air, through the water, through everything. And so in a way to see that, in a way to help us toward this appropriate speech, to help us toward this appropriate listening, that in a way the looking into impermanence, the kind of the experiencing of suffering, the experiencing the not-self is not to frighten us, actually, but actually more to remove the obstacle to our wisdom, to our compassion, manifesting. And I think this is what we're doing on this retreat. That's what I wanted to say today. Are there any questions? Or, yes? Uh, in relation to pain and suffering, uh, when one feels powerless and helpless in a situation, a Christian would pray to God or hold a person in the light. What does a Buddhist do? Well, it depends. If they, if, it depends what kind of Buddhist. If you have a, a, a Buddhist could pray to Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion, a, a Buddhist could uh, pray to uh, the Buddha, or to, I mean, there are, you know, we have lots of gods and goddesses too if we are into this kind of thing. Personally, I would, I would go, depending on what it is, I think it depends on what it is, but I would first go into what I call a place of refuge within myself, of stability, of openness, of awareness, and also of acceptance to see this is difficult, this is painful. You know, how can I be with this? 
So I would go first for, in a way, this accepting awareness. And then I would see, what can I do? Do I need to take a painkiller? Do I need to go to the doctor? Do I need to see a therapist? Do I need to go for a walk, or etc., etc.? I think, in a way, for me, the first thing would be to accept. To accept that, yes, this is difficult. Yes, this, at this moment, it seems hopeless. At this moment, it seems stuck. But to know, I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, to know this is not necessarily going to last in this way. At some point, it's going to change. I can help it to change, or I have to accept that it is the way it is. We had a friend who was very ill with cancer. And so we went to visit him in the hospice. And we were totally, there was nothing we could do, nothing we could do. He was under drugs and everything. But the only thing we could do was to be there with him at that moment, just to accompany him at that moment. And so there was this feeling, a little of hopelessness, and at the same time, the acceptance of the feeling, and just being there at that moment in that way. And then all the time, you can do something. I think it just depends on the situations. Okay, good. So now there is a walking meditation, and then the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.